Hello and welcome to the Daily Lawyer. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today is our third episode in our careers in the law series and today we are going to speak about something very different. We are going to speak about how you can get into legislative policy or starting a think tank. Uh, and I'm so happy. I don't think I can have a better guest uh, to actually uh, discuss this with us. And I have my very, very dear friend, Dhwani Mehta. A lot of you may already know her. Uh, Dhwani is the co-founder of uh, Vidhi Legal Policy. It's a think tank based out of Delhi. She heads their uh, team, which deals in health. And she does. Uh, she works on issues like pharmaceutical regulation, end-of-life care, or organ transplantation. She's working on public health, public health emergency legislation. She's one of the most brilliant people I know. She's an LLB from GLC, but she also got the Rhodes Scholarship. And then she went to Oxford, where she did her PCL and her DPhil from Oxford and um, in environmental law. But she's now in India and she's really doing some amazing work. So I'm so happy. Dhwani, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much, Jenna. It's a real pleasure and that was a very kind introduction and I think you're doing a wonderful, this is a wonderful initiative and I'm very happy to be able to talk about uh, my career path today. So thank you for having me. Thanks, Dhani. I, 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 I really meant it when I said that I can't think of a better person uh, to talk about this. Uh, I mean, part of the reason, part of what we are doing today is also because I think people barely know anything, you know, when everybody's idea of a lawyer is what they see in the movies unfortunately or right. or what they see on suits so it's either like you're shouting and fighting in court or you're wearing all these fancy clothes and you're you know in this fancy right. office and there's so much more than and uh, you, what you are doing more than anything which i find very inspiring is uh, how you're creating an impact uh using right. your um, education and um, your contacts and your expertise. So, Dhwani, before we get to the think tank part, can you tell everyone how it started? How did you um, how did you get into the law actually? How did sure. you? So, I think how I got into the law was influenced by books and movies actually. So, I was very influenced by To Kill a Mockingbird, which was compulsory summer reading for us in the eighth standard and I thought wow what an inspiring person Atticus Finch is and this is the kind of thing that I want to do and then as far as the area of law was concerned I was very influenced by the movie Erin Brockovich and um, I thought yes you know working on environmental pollution and protecting our planet is really an important thing to do and that's why I want to be an environmental lawyer. And that kind of stuck with me. So I, I took that interest in environmental law right into law college as well. And, and then into my master's and finally my PhD also, where I ultimately wrote a thesis on environmental rule of law. Because so I think the, you know, the general thinking was that law is an instrument of social change and you can, you can use it to solve some of the world's important problems. And it felt like, you know, the environmental crisis is one of those problems and therefore it was important to be uh, an environmental lawyer. So that's sort of how I, uh, I got into it. Now, I'll confess that I don't find environmental law as intellectually interesting anymore. I still think it's a very important area of work, uh, but I've kind of shifted focus a little bit to working on issues uh, related to health. Um, but of, of course, I keep an interest in environmental law alive as well. Dhwani, because I know you for so long and I've known you through GLC, I know that when it comes to environmental law, you were also doing, you know, when you were a student, you were working with BEAG and like you were really very passionate. So for a student who was listening and, you know, if they are similar like you, like they also are influenced by all of the other movies that have come since, what do you, uh, what do you want to tell them? Like what, how would you tell them to take their you know, five years in law or then even after that, especially working with an organization like BEAG or something. Exactly. So, I mean, I'd say that the most important piece of advice I have, and I mean, I wish someone had told me that as well when I was in law college, is that you must know a little bit more about the sector rather than just the law. So, uh, it's important to work with other organizations who are working on environmental issues, understand how these problems play out on the ground, what practical challenges actually are, what are the kinds of constraints that people uh, face in, in tackling these problems? Because unless 
you have that kind of holistical holistic perspective you won't know what to do as a lawyer so i would recommend that you you gain as much practical experience as you can while you are working at law college now i know that was easy for us to do at glc because we had a flexible academic schedule that allowed us to do that but i know that law students these days are very passionate about everything and will find the time if they if they need to so find a couple of organizations that you think are doing great work don't it doesn't matter if they are not doing legal work uh, i think that's my most important piece of advice so sort of get a perspective on things other than the law and now even even during your college and now i know you work in the area of health but it's not a new thing like you've done you've been doing this even when you were in college you were working with kms uh, committee on you know various things giving policy yeah, advice stuff like that yeah yeah that so how did you get into that and for someone who's interested in this area of health i think environmental law is something that most people are familiar with you know we we at least know what it is most people would know what it is but i think Absolutely. this area of health and the law is something yeah. that people probably don't know and you used to do medical negligence work way back when you were a student right right so right actually i stumbled on that a little bit by chance i mean i used to i grew up in an in a hospital campus and so i was in close contact with doctors uh, all my life and uh, that's how i got interested in medical uh, ethics issues bioethics uh, and then when the opportunity presented itself to be part of the ethics committee that you know used to evaluate clinical trial proposals i jumped at that but i mean again i was i was lucky enough to to get that opportunity but as i said i think there are if, if you know for students who are interested these days there are lots of avenues and opportunities health law it says a kind of an emerging field in india yeah we do have a well developed field on medical law and medical medical negligence and uh, you know there's there's probably a lot of practical experience you could get by interning with a hospital administration or working with lawyers who specialize in medical legal disputes but as far as health and the law goes again i'd say I'd, i'd give the same advice that i gave to someone who might be interested in environmental law so go and seek out organizations that are doing interesting work on public health delivery um you know for example the public health foundation of india or the jan swasthya abhiyan uh, or the forum for medical ethics uh, society in bombay and these are just a few examples but uh, even if it's your it's a rural local ngo that is working to ensure that people get access to safe and affordable medicines or you know who ensure that people uh, are able to access treatment in a tertiary care hospital do an internship go and work and see go and see what it is that it that that it takes to actually make the healthcare system work or actually you know what's more likely is you will discover all the things that are not working about the healthcare system and then that gives you a better understanding of where you think the law has a role to play or not and is this how you uh you know started with he like what what is why did you start or maybe we should go back and talk about the road scholarship because that sort of led you to meet the right people to to that's start right. so yeah, you were right. you were the first person i think in 25 years to get the road scholarship in law from bombay no in law yeah, from bombay Yeah, yeah, yeah. and we were all so proud. We were like, "Oh, it's our!" You know, we we felt like it is our uh, achievement. So, why don't you talk a little bit about the Rhodes Scholarship and you know sure, what sure. what is it? First of all, for a loss, I don't think most people sure. probably know it. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's an academic scholarship, so it's a scholarship for you to pursue postgraduate degrees, but only at the University of Oxford. So, unlike other scholarships that allow you to pursue. your education at a variety of other institutions this is specifically limited to oxford it's available for people across a range of disciplines so it's not just for lawyers it can uh, uh, you can get it for anything else um, and then it's a it's a global scholarship so there are students from uh, all over the world who are eligible for it and there are specific jurisdictions which have expanded since the time at which since the time i applied uh, but from india there are currently five scholarships available for uh, students choosing to do their masters or their phd at at oxford but it's these five is across the across disciplines right it's not like five for law so it's no, possible and there is no, yeah. yeah there's no quota so there you know 
it might be the case that no lawyer gets it in one year or as it often happens three lawyers out of five end up winning the scholarship because lawyers just tend to be some you know more articulate uh, during the interview process sometimes um but it's in theory available to to everyone and there's a very uh, rigorous selection process but broadly speaking the criteria are for one you know you uh, your literary and scholastic attainments so you have to be um, very good at uh, academics essentially and there's a very so the, there are uh, literary i mean the literary and scholastic attainment is the minimum criterion and then there are uh, other criteria that you have to demonstrate uh, you know they're broadly understood as extracurricular criteria but essentially they are uh, you you have to display energy to use your talents to the fullest you have to display truth courage devotion kindliness for um, you know people who are less uh, who are more disadvantaged than you are and uh, finally you have to show moral force of character and instincts to lead and an interest in your fellow human beings so these are the kinds of criteria that you are judged on as part of the selection process i mean it sounds like such big words right all of these i know i know it's really subjective and Uh, and i also know like you know when when you went for the scholarship the last interview you were actually not asked anything about law really but about western music and classical music and things like that because people actually don't know that you are a piano player and like that's, i don't know all that i don't know if i can call myself that anymore i haven't practiced in a very long time yeah. but yes the scholarship is about not just your academic uh, ability but other area other passions that you have as i said you know energy to use your talents to the fullest means what else is it that you can show to the scholarship committee that you did do with your time what are are you are you using your uh, the, you know the time available to you the resources available to you to to the fullest to make yourself a well rounded person and that's why they they want to know what are your interests other than outside of academia and how are you using some of your both your academic and your extracurricular uh, activities to to make the world a better place in some sense so you know to help solve one of uh, you know the bigger problems that there are in in the world yeah, i th- i think that's actually a good answer dhwani because you've given a broad perspective and it's it's a very you know it's a very subjective criteria so i think you've done a pretty good job in giving the contours and i also know that oh, you what you're saying is your own opinion as in you're not sort of speaking on behalf of the roads uh, yeah so i should clarify that i am yeah. now deputy secretary of the roads trust in india so i mean what i've said so far is all part of cecil roads's will and is on the roads scholarship website but yes as in to your listeners please don't treat this as an official advice from the roads trust but uh, general information about the scholarship and of course there's more that you can read on the scholarships website as well yeah so basically this is your experience and from that angle uh, the question that i'm asking is also from that angle okay because you know for a person who's who, who do you think should apply for the scholarship uh, right for someone who's listening and need so not I'm be lawyers that, but yeah i mean the minimum criterion has has to be that you have a really high uh, i mean you, you you've been a very high achieving academic performer because uh, basically you know, scholarship... you've been you've been like a top ranker uh, in exactly, through your exactly. school and through your college and and That's through right. your whatever basic degree that you're doing exactly so especially your undergrad degree you must have it has to be at least a first class honors degree and you have to be in the top uh, 1 to 3% of your class honestly i mean of course those numbers are are subjective but uh, you know, so i'm not saying you can't be in the top 5% of your class but really uh, this is the minimum criterion because also it's very the scholarship itself doesn't guarantee you admission to oxford university and uh, so you know if you don't get admission to oxford after that then the scholarship isn't put to any use so um, and and oxford becomes oh, i don't know that you so yes, the scholarship right. oh no, is so it scholarship, oh, so, yeah so the scholarship, the scholarship is different and then you have to apply to oxford separately is it Exactly. Exactly. That's right. So there's. Does a, it happen? Does it happen that people are rejected? Um, I mean, I don't know how, whether it's happened in the past uh, few years. I, I mean, well, I, I I don't know. I don't have official confirmation of this, but there are uh, 
I mean, it, it is just getting more competitive to get into Oxford. So we know that Oxford standards themselves are getting higher and higher. So this is something to keep in mind. So, you know, if you have, if, if you have a, you know, you might have all the most wonderful extracurricular uh, achievements in the world, but if you can't meet the bar for entry into an Oxford academic degree, then it probably doesn't make sense to apply for the scholarship. Uh, who do you think should definitely not apply for the scholarship? Forget the academic part because, yeah, that's a very objective sort of uh, threshold. But who do you think should not really bother about the scholarship? I mean, okay, I, I wouldn't put it quite like that. But I'd say that, you know, the committee might not be interested in an application that is very one-dimensional. So, you know, you might have one singular focus and purpose in the world and that, might, you know, it might be related to you might want to be the best quantum physicist in the world. Uh, but if you are unable to explain to the committee why you think that that academic purpose is also, also serves the public good in some sense, or if you are unable to see how you can, or, or demonstrate how you can use your education to better the lives of people around you, then this is not the scholarship for you. Because this is a scholarship that encourages you to think not just about yourself and what is the best version of yourself you can be, but how that best version of yourself can help others. Uh, and so if you don't have that instinct, and that's that's perfectly fine, you know, lots of people want to be only academics who are interested, you know, they have a sort of blinkered approach to their work, they want to be the best in their field, that's a perfectly legitimate uh, objective. But I would say that that's not quite the kind of fit then that the scholarship is is looking for it's looking for people who have that leadership element who want to to bring about some change who have a sense of urgency and want to act um, so if, if if you feel like those are not things that that you can demonstrate then then this is perhaps not for you what do you think uh, was the value of the road scholarship in your life uh, a lot. I mean, I, it changed my life, honestly. Uh, and of course, the most basic and important one is that it gave me access to such a high quality education. Uh, maybe I would have got, ended up at Oxford in, in another way, but this was a, a much smoother way for me to, to be able to access that, that education. The second was that it just put me in touch with such a wide variety of interesting people. And uh, those are important networks that I have today as well. So, you know, if I'm interested in finding out about what is happening in public health in the US or how someone in Canada handled the pandemic, I have a network that I can tap into and reach out to and ask for this uh, information and people are usually willing to respond. So I'd say that the, mo you know, the most important thing that it gave me was access to all these wonderful people doing uh, pretty incredible things uh, all around the world and uh, you know you really can't underestimate the value of that kind of social and cultural capital really so I'm very grateful for that um, and finally yes it, you know it, it introduced me well to my husband now and the person with whom I started uh, Vidhi so again I don't think that the idea to have you know to start a think tank would have come about had I not been in this kind of environment and had access or met people who thought differently about yeah. a, a career in the law. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, like you, you were saying it very nicely when you said, you know, the, the scholarship is looking for people who are, uh, who want to not just be the best version of themselves, but also use that to, to create an impact. And I think that's you guys starting with the two of you is a real sort of manifestation of that ideal uh, because I know both of you are Rhodes Scholars. Now we come to Vidhi, uh, because I remember for the first time when we spoke, uh, you told us that you guys are having this idea and we hadn't even heard of what the, what a think tank was. You're like, no, we think you're doing policy and like, okay, but how will that even work? Right, so right. how did this whole thing start and what does Vidhi yeah. do? And for a sure. young lawyer, for a law uh, student now, because you guys have already paved the way, in terms of starting a think tank and doing so well. And so for, for a young lawyer, if you're, if you're ex explaining to somebody like that, how are you going to talk about what a think tank does and what Vidhi does? Sure. So uh, one, I mean, 
we started it with there were the four of us so orgo and my two of my colleagues alok and devanshu were also part of this uh, journey and i mean i i'll be very honest the idea isn't mine so this is something that came about when orgo was uh, you know start he was also at oxford um, and he decided along with a couple of other students to submit some comments on a draft nuclear liability bill that parliament was debating at the time and as it turned out someone from parliament got in touch with them and asked them to come and make a presentation before the parliamentary standing committee and they ultimately saw how their suggestions got incorporated into the final version of the law and that felt very momentous it felt like you know their legal research had an impact on the actual shape that the law took and that's where the idea began that we thought okay maybe there's a gap over here that someone can fill uh, we know that there are gaps i mean we we know that the traditional ways in which the law is used are in court or you know in commercial law but we haven't thought about how to apply those skills to the actual drafting of laws and we think that there is a lack of capacity within government to be able to do that well and perhaps this is a role that we can fill so that is how vidhi uh, came about essentially and that continues to be the mission today obviously we've learned a lot over the last 8 years and have refined it and expanded our work to other areas of the law but the broad mission is that we think we can do legal research to uh, assist government in drafting better laws and in improving governance for the public good um so sometimes i mean that that can take two forms so either we sometimes work directly with government and this is primarily the executive branch of government so we we'll, we will work with ministries in the central government or at the state government level uh to help them draft specific pieces of legislation uh in other areas where it's sometimes harder to get direct engagement with ministries for example the area that i work in health we decide that we will begin by uh identifying areas where we think legal reform is needed doing research in those areas to again to explain what the problem is to make recommendations for reform and then to build a public narrative around the need for that change so the path might be different but the goal is ultimately the same to to convince government that there is a need to act to change the law in a particular uh, area and sometimes government is completely convinced of it sometimes it takes much harder and in, when it takes harder there are lots of other avenues that you have to pursue i mean sometimes it could be strategic litigation in court or it could be collaborating with other civil society organizations whatever it is but the idea is that we think high quality original research can help uh, ultimately shape uh, the law for a, for the good how did uh, like four students literally like finished oxford even Though you're all brilliant, all four of you, how did you guys just come with no background? Like none of you really have some kind of, you know, none of you are uh, kids of civil servants or you have like some, uh, you know, all kinds any any background with the state or central government. How did you guys just come and start this? Like how did it start? I think we were lucky. Again, as I said, you know, the idea was primarily Orgon, and he spent quite a lot of time. trying to pitch that idea to people who could fund us because th- that was important right we needed someone to back us and say that this is a good idea that is worth investing in and we are happy to support you for your initial journey and that's what we did and we were lucky initially to find three people who were able to uh, who who believed in the idea and gave us the money to to start with the off and those were rohini nilekani anand mahindra and vikram lal um and you know they they continue to be our funders today as well so without that we wouldn't have been able to to start and since then we've been able to of course uh demonstrate the impact of our work and convince uh, other people of the importance of investing in legal and policy research although it continues to be an uphill task so fundraising is actually a very large part of what we do in our day jobs um but yeah i i think the starting point was being able to find three people who also be uh, well a couple of people who believed that uh, this was something worth investing in. apart from the money of course it's about getting access to government right because that was an important part of our work how do we um meet people who will be able to in government who will be able to again trust us and engage us to to do this kind of work and again that was a, a lot of it was cold calling and requesting meetings and just 
landing up at uh, ministry offices and telling them this is our work and and you know what do you think and being prepared for them rebuffing us or rejecting us but there were also some people who were you know bureaucrats primarily because that's who we engage with uh, for the most part in government there were other bureaucrats who believed in our work and wanted to take a bet on us i suppose so and after that you know once that starts then you you demonstrate that you are able to do work of good quality and then you get you know you get connected to other people who are also willing to uh, work with you i really love uh, listening to this this story of yours because it's not the first time i've heard this i've heard this before but i really think that there's so much in your story you know resilience thinking big like taking a chance not overthinking whether oh my god is this worth it because you guys have all had such splendid education and then you could have really gotten a job or whatever and making a ton of money in all of these fancy not only in india actually it's great that you actually came back to india you needn't have and we know a lot of people who haven't which is okay it's just fine okay yeah. but yeah so uh dhwani for someone like let's assume there's a law student who's listening or there's a young lawyer who's yeah. listening and they're finding what you do very interesting and they want to you know they they either want to work with you or they want to just sort of uh, find what what would make them more attractive to somebody like you so what is it sure. that vidhi looks for in terms of partnering sure. with other lawyers or law students right um so we a lot of our hires are sort of our people who have just graduated from law school and actually for us that's the best kind of resource because we are interested in people who want to work on a range of things so if you have a wide range of interests i mean we we have initially we have for the most part over the last few years begun specializing and hiring for our specific teams or research areas but broadly really we are looking for people who who are interested in a wide area of uh, of the law so we just want people who are intelligent again we, we don't place such a high premium on amazing grades but at the end of the day some kind of academic record is a proxy for you know how diligent or hard working you are so what we are really looking for is whether you are sincere committed willing to put in the hard work and are intellectually curious and open to a range of uh, areas so really other than uh, other than the ability to maybe think laterally and uh, be open minded and be willing to go out there and engage with a wide variety of people because we encourage even our young research fellows to take meetings with people in government to go out and build networks and partnerships of their own so you know if you are the kind of person who's uh, happy to do that then we are very happy to have you as well uh, so there isn't any any specific skill set as such that we are looking for in a cv um, apart from you know a, a reasonable academic record and an openness to uh, work across a range of areas and you take interns and stuff also because we have we do take interns we have an internship program so far it's been working remotely because of the pandemic yeah. but at some point we'll get back to having interns in person which has always been a really valuable addition to our team so you know keep an eye out on our website uh, for you know for your listeners dwani okay. you um... you know you've you've done a lot of different work in the sense you've worked with government you've worked with ngos you've worked with hospitals you've worked yeah. with educational boards i do you've done a lot of different things and in and through this journey you've met a lot of new people what do you think are the mistakes that you see common people making which uh, which leads to unnecessary risk you know in their in their everyday life and because okay. one of the one of the i'll tell you from where i'm asking this question one of the goals Absolutely. of the daily lawyer is basically to give relevant information to the world at large so that right. to reduce basically to mitigate future risks and to help them take better decisions so okay. what do you think people do in their everyday lives that are easily solvable or if they just spend a little time knowing about the law knowing about the law okay okay uh this is an interesting question i'm not i mean i'm not sure what what are the kinds of mistakes that people make um but maybe people see the law as a as an impenetrable thing isn't they don't make the effort to uh engage with the law and maybe yeah. that's the law's problem as well so the law itself is 
dense and complicated and not easily accessible to the common person. So people treat the law as this really frightening thing. Yeah, yeah. And actually, there is a way in which the law can be used to facilitate what you do. And yeah. to give you a practical example, I see this a lot with the doctors that I work with. So they are always worried about doing, you know, doing what they think is ethically right because they are worried about what the law will say about this. And my answer to all to them always is don't worry about the law. Do what your discipline tells you. Do what your medical training has taught you and the law will take care of it or at least responsible lawyers will make sure that you are not held liable for something like yeah. that. So my, the common mistake I feel is for people to, that people let their actions be guided by the law when they should let, let them be guided by their own professional expertise and make, a, you know, I mean, obviously, apart from whatever uh, uh, things are obviously illegal, but whatever is obviously yeah. illegal, you will know is obviously illegal. Yeah. So basically, don't practice a defensive kind of medicine. And for other professions, don't don't go about things with the sword of the law hanging over yeah. your head. But, you know, maybe this is more... Uh... As in, it's more applicable in medicine when you say a defensive type of practice. Uh, because, right, right. Uh, for example, I come from a legal counsel sort of background, right? Uh, right. And I have the opposite problem. And I agree yeah. with you in the sense that, you know, people treat the law as some live wire. I don't want to touch it. Yeah. I'll get right. burned if I touch it. So I'll do everything so that I don't need to touch it. So you, you, right. you have a document, you, you, you know, you, yeah. you discuss with your sales or whatever the other side. Uh, you sell something and then you come to the lawyer and you say, I want you to pass this document and you can't because it's definitely, you know, risky and stuff like that. So I think your people have the opposite problem and, and both, I think it may comes down to not really understanding what are the contours of the law, even possibly in the example that you gave, you know, uh, the, if you're very afraid of being sued for medical negligence, you are, you obviously become very defensive and, but if very, you know, you know, under what circumstances it will be medical negligence or not in very simple terms. Exactly. Exactly. So, so you, so yeah, actually we, you're speaking to the, to the reason why we started TDL. So I'm really happy about that. Uh, what do you think we can do, Dhani? Because I think we are all trying to make an impact. You are doing, you, you, you guys have been doing it for a while, uh, but we are in, in our own way starting. But as lawyers, what do you think we can do to contribute to make things better because I really feel that our system is extraordinarily stressed and it's not yeah. people's fault that they do not trust the law. You know, that's right. We right. have not, we have not given, I mean, uh, yeah, Bollywood has painted us in a particular way, which is, uh, which has done us no credit, but yeah. uh, it also, you know, the judicial delays as a litigant, I felt so helpless. Absolutely. So what do you think we can all do each of us in our own way to, make things better especially from a policy perspective when you 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 bring that perspective in so what do you think yeah. we can do i mean i mean I, I don't know specifically well i mean i guess there are different ways of looking at this one is please use in everyday language avoid legalese talking to people speaking to uh, you know people you're advising try and make things simpler because that that is a huge part of the reason why people feel intimidated by the law and don't want to engage with it and think the legal system is is oppressive. So I'd say plain language speaking, plain language, we try to implement plain language drafting as well. These are some, these are very basic things that we can all try to, to do as lawyers, whether it's in the way in which you draft draw up a contract or the way in which you speak to your client or the way in which I advise government about something. Um, the second, as far as you know, judicial delays goes. I mean, we have a whole team at Vidhi that looks at this issue and aims to, re- you know, reduce pendency in courts. And I think it's a it's a multi pronged problem with lots of uh, different solutions that are needed. But obviously, one of those is you know more. Eth- I mean, I've always felt this personally. So this is not really backed by any empirical evidence. But I feel the way in which lawyers practice, the way in which they take on a vast number of briefs, ask for adjournments, uh, prioritize a hierarchical uh, profession where senior advocates are seen as uh, the pinnacle or are put on a pedestal. I mean, all of these things contribute to 
the, the court operating in a certain way. Um, and, you know, there being this sort of cozy relationship between the bar and the bench, which prevents matters from moving on, or which actually, it's not even... It's not, as if, it's not even as if this prevents matters, but it's it's a mindset that that is hostile to outside change. And I feel the law is a very closed profession like that. That's so true. It's just about being more open in your everyday interactions uh, and being more ethical in the way in which you practice. That are some of the simple things that we can do as individual lawyers. Okay, Dhwani, now we, now we want to move into the section of motherhood and the law. Because right. it is something that uh, I know that I struggled when I had both my girls. Uh, and we all struggle in our own ways. So Absolutely. one of the things that I want to discuss and hopefully we can all learn from each other is how how do you manage um, being sure. a lawyer, which is a f- full-time sort of profession, very demanding on you right. and your intellect and being a mother, which is a full-time profession, very demanding on your intellect, your physical body, everything. How do you do that? What are some of the things that you've done to make this manage both? Right. So, I mean, a caveat, I've just sort of, I mean, I feel like I've only just eased back into full-time work. So I took my time to, I had, I had the six months of maternity leave, but then I had a little more extended leave. I mean, again, this is all a combination of having to work remotely during the pandemic Pandemic. and having the flexibility to do this by virtue of my position in the organization that I helped found. So I'm very, I acknowledge that privilege and I'm very grateful for being in that position that allows me to structure my day in the way in which I want to. Um, So one thing that really helps me is that I'm not answerable to an external boss. So um, that allows me to, to ensure that I'm able to balance my day in the way in which I, suits me the most. Um, but, you know, two or three things that I feel have helped, and I, they're still a work in progress because I'm still, I don't think I've achieved that kind of balance, is one, uh, I have to, you have to delegate more. So I have to trust my team to be able to do some of this work without, you know, me wanting to cast a hawk's eye over everything they do. So you have to really trust the people you work with and be not be afraid to empower them to carry on the work and you know be confident that that will be of a high quality the second is uh, to ask people to accommodate you so i earlier used to feel very hesitant you know should i request rescheduling this meeting because it's going to coincide with when i have to breastfeed my son or i don't want to do a meeting after five because i want to go to the park and play with him and i used to feel guilty about doing that i st- i'll admit that i still feel a bit hesitant but people are more than willing to accommodate you. And it's a question of you asking, as in it, it might, it's not going to occur to everyone, but it's about you setting that, setting those priorities straight up front and uh, saying that this is what I can work around and can you please accommodate me? And the third, I think, is not to feel guilty about enjoying your work. So I, I mean, the, I, I was apprehensive about the first time I would, you know, spend a full working day away from my son. Uh, but I actually really enjoyed being in office, being with my colleagues, uh, having some uninterrupted time to read and think. And I didn't want to feel guilty about it. And I, I mean, that's what I want to tell, you know, other parents out there as well. It's, it's, it's perfectly compatible to enjoy a, you know, a full working life with, and spend time away from your child, which is an inevitable part of it, with being a good parent. So, uh, you know, do enjoy the work that you are that you're doing and don't feel guilty I think that is the that is the one advice that we should all take to heart don't feel guilty because when yeah, you're with our kids yeah. yeah I'm not saying I follow that advice very well myself but yeah. I'm trying to. I think I think we need reminders constantly right because we have good yeah. days and bad days like we have days when we feel yeah. terrible about ourselves yeah. uh, we have days yeah. when we feel very accomplished so we have to keep reminding ourselves how do you right. think um, motherhood has influenced being a lawyer because we are I uh, Manisha and I were speaking the other day and I said we were actually discussing has has being a lawyer like our legal training has it influenced yeah. us as mothers in the, like no it hasn't it has played no part but but certainly motherhood has influenced us uh, as professionals oh, really? how, how do, how do, I would say it is the other way around for me oh, is so it? I, mean, I, don't see, I don't see how 
motherhood has changed how I think as a lawyer for the most part, except that maybe it's made me interested in areas where that, I mean, it's made me take more of an interest in certain areas. For example, now I am more invested in what the government of Delhi is going to do about an early childhood development law, or I care a lot more than I earlier did about air pollution control regulations in Delhi. So I'd say that it's, uh, it's just influenced what are my areas of interest? I don't think it's influenced how I think so much as a lawyer. But as a, as a professional, as in a, your, how, how it has influenced your professional life? Oh, like um, your mother has an influence of professional life. Again, as I said, it's more about the, what I spoke, just spoke about, right? It's, it's changed how, it's changed my management style at work in some sense. And it's made me less... Uh, obsessed with micromanaging and more willing to delegate so i'd say that's it, it, it's more an administrative thing rather than the way in which i think uh, but i feel like i bring my training as a especially from my phd uh, to how i look at motherhood so there is a lot of research that i want to do on everything there is a lot of there's i feel like i know how to weigh the good evidence in support of something against the bad uh, so I feel like that that kind of training influences the kind of parenting decisions I make as well sometimes. But that's really interesting, Dwani, what you just said, because it's exactly the opposite for me. Like for me, okay. I, the, the thing that, you know, after I became a mom, I was forced to prioritize. Like I had to uh, sort of, I can't do this. I, and, I, and I had to start saying no a lot more than yeah. I would. Even like you mentioned at work, you know, if you ask for help and if you ask for accommodation, people do accommodate and it would never have occurred to me to do that before. Not like for things like taking them down to the park or just stuff like that. And um, yeah, I think think my non-negotiables became so clear that I was able to work uh, much like the same three hours. I was doing so much more because I know I have to go back or whatever so yeah but the other way around absolutely not like I I I don't think I think I should speak to you about how you weigh this advice (laughs) I I get so much because you know I mean I come from a big family and all of that so anyway that's a conversation for another time Dhwani the the last question I want to ask you at least in this segment is um, about your partner because all of us as working professionals uh, we need the support or you know, we need a sort of sort of ecosystem to to support us yeah. uh, but i really think that the role of your partner is uh, a very special one so there are two Absolutely. questions i want to ask you the first is do you think that there are any conversations uh, that the parents or the 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 spouses whatever they need to have before they have the child and then yeah. Yeah. and then what like, how do you think you can, you know, your partner supports you in, in ensuring this work-life balance? Absolutely. Yeah, I think the conversation parents need to have is, one, they need to be very aware about what are the specific physical and emotional demands that parenting is going to take on. And I mean, everyone hears about it, but I don't think anyone really knows. I don't know if you can be fully prepared for it until you actually are in the middle of it. but I feel fathers especially can do a much better job of being fully aware of what it is that they're going to be in for. So I kind of sometimes feel that some of this hit my partner by surprise that he wasn't, he didn't quite know that it was going to be this hard. And I think it's important to, to be aware of that. The second is to have a conversation about what is the kind of parent that each of you wants to be. And accordingly, uh, figure out what your roles are Uh, because then otherwise without that you will have this mismatch of 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 expectations so uh fine you know if my partner tells me actually my strengths lie in uh you know being able to read to my son and taking him out to the park or i will be able to play a greater role when he's you know reached the age of three or four and can talk okay that's fine but you need to know that you need to know that this is where this is the role you see yourself as being able to play. And therefore, these are the other things that your partner will need to do. And if your partner needs to do those, these are the ways in which you need to support your partner. So that is a conversation that I think is very important. And do you, and actually, this is a brilliant answer. 
and i think we all learn through living it you know we've not uh, exactly. obviously exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you you don't uh, think about you you don't you should have these conversations before you have a kid but i didn't Definitely. i don't know whether you did but i know that i didn't not and really know, yeah we uh, we don't realize such an overwhelmingly big responsibility it is because you're literally manufacturing the next generation of human beings so you exactly like and we don't take it seriously enough at least uh, our society doesn't take it seriously enough so yeah i um, i encourage everybody who is listening if you don't have kids and you want to have kids you should do what dhwani said and uh, i agree with her uh, how does uh, your partner like a partner you, it may not be just yours but how can a partner support uh, his wife or whatever spouse uh, in ensuring this work life balance like what do you think yeah i mean they, the way in which they should be doing that is seeing this as an completely equal exercise now i mean i obviously i know that there are you know biological factors that prevent this from being a mathematically exact exactly equal distribution of labor especially during the first year but the emotional investment can be the same as in your partner should feel as invested as you in how you're going to wean your baby what is what medicines you want to give the baby what is the kind of disciplining approach you want to adopt whether your baby is able to sleep at night or not and you want to sleep train him i feel like you know even the mind space the mental load that we keep talking about that women have to bear this is something that you know your your partners uh, also have to be equally invested in these are not just so i'm not just talking about doing the physical share of these tasks but thinking about the planning also thinking about what is it that needs to be done uh these are all areas in which i would expect my partner to to be there and be as invested as i am I, again it's a work in progress i don't think we are quite there yet but uh at least i'm hopefully i'm i'm conveying this more more clearly now uh, but it's good i like the way you uh, you are actually answering in a few words but telling so many things i i really like <laughs> okay dhari this is the last segment of the entire podcast it's called 5 4 3 2 1 i ask you five and then four four questions or whatever so we're starting with sure. five so sure. you tell me five productivity tip, tips or uh, things that have helped you generally in your personal and professional lives if you've got sure. some app recommendations i don't know anything whatever five of okay. anything that has helped you that way Okay, so for the first is advice from my partner actually, which is to create a mini schedule at the start of each day of what your day is going to look like and divide up your day into hourly segments and know what it is that you're broadly going to do for for that day. So I found that that found that to be quite a useful exercise, and it doesn't allow me to get uh, bogged down by the whole weight of thing of everything that I have to do. And I mean, I think related to that is. to look at the smaller picture actually rather than the larger one so if i and again this is speaking purely from a managerial perspective if there is a large research report that i have to write if i am able to break it down into smaller sections and focus on let's say i focus every day on three paragraphs that i need to write i find that focusing on that is much more helps me be much more productive than thinking about the thing as a whole because again that can sometimes paralyze me if i think about everything else that that needs to be done um again what i feel is kind of counter intuitive and something i mean i'm not currently successful at doing is trying not to multitask so i feel like again i'm more productive when i have one thing and one task on hand that i can concentrate on fully so if i'm i i know that mums are supposed to be super multitaskers uh and i understand that but i find that sometimes it doesn't allow me to do either of those things yeah. well so if there is a way in which you can structure your day that allows you undivided time for smaller tasks then i find that 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 gives me a greater sense of satisfaction yeah. but that end. is a better way of doing it dhani i don't think this i don't know who came up with this great narrative that we have to do multiple things you yeah, know like that super mom one hand saucepan one hand diaper yeah. what rubbish yeah. and then there's one laptop open in front of us and all that but <laughs> we are not doing anything neither are we cooking nor are we taking care of the child nor are we working 
So exactly. I agree with you. Sorry, and the other two things that I feel in my personal life have just helped is to make a habit of reading. Like I, I again, I feel like I've lost that a little bit over this last year of motherhood, but uh, it's always been a constant companion and a great source of relaxation. Again, a source of intellectual excitement uh, and broadening my world. So making time for some reading, and finally making time for my friends as well. Again, not something I've been. very great about over the last few years uh, but i know uh, what a great source of uh, emotional strength they all and support they always are and uh, it it makes it makes my life infinitely better to know that i have uh, friends like that in there so want to make sure that i am able to do as much as i can to to set some time aside for them as yeah. well yeah yeah and now four now you spoke about reading so then you're like give me a nice little segue into the next question which is four sure. books that yeah. you'd recommend anyone to read sure. or listen to sure so i've got a mix of two fiction and two non fiction books um one again because it comes from my uh, interest in the environment is this book called the sixth extinction by elizabeth colbert that again that talks about the devastation of of, of climate change and the way in which Uh, a vast proportion of the world's species are getting ex- you know are, are becoming extinct more rapidly than we thought they would so i feel like it's a very sobering reminder of what uh, what we should be thinking about as far as our daily actions as as human beings go also so just a a book to put in perspective your place in this in this world um the second uh, Okay, I'll alternate. So the second book is non-fiction. Uh, it's fiction, and it's my one of. It's actually my all-time favorite book. It's a Suitable Boy by Vikram Seth. I know it's a mammoth book, and so I'm not sure how many people will be interested in reading it. But apart from being beautifully written, I also think it uh, it's a wonderful, uh, actually, perspective of India right after uh, independence, and you know all the political changes that took place at that time. So um, just in terms of giving you a very rich picture of what india looked at, at looked like at that time i would say this is a is a wonderful book but if that's not for you and you're a, you would prefer non fiction then the other book in that vein which i would recommend you read is india after gandhi by ram guha uh, which is again just a wonderful primer i mean it's not it, it can't the book doesn't go into very deep detail on every uh, change in history uh, every, you know every historical political social change in india since independence but it's a it's a, it gives you a really good birds eye view of 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 what happened so if you feel like you need a quick crash course in uh, indian political history over the last 50 60 years then i would recommend this book and um, finally i wanted to recommend a handmaid's tale by margaret atwood which is a you know it's a dystopian book set in uh, you know where where women lose control over their reproductive rights and again as a as a feminist i feel it's a it, it's one of the stand out books in that in that genre and uh, really compulsory reading for men women uh, people of any gender uh, out there on on how important values like liberty and autonomy are and how we take them for granted Can have an entire conversation with you on the, the especially the handmade state, but that's for another time. Uh, that will sure, even be on the podcast. Uh, now the three, like where we can come down to three. Now three uh, tips uh, that you would sure. give young lawyers or law students for their entry into the Got law. It. Got it. Um, one, I would say, and I think this is linked to what I spoke about during our talk as well, which is to think beyond a career, a traditional career in the law. and i think young students are already doing that there's a lot of interesting things that they are pursuing but know that the you know studying law doesn't just mean that it's either the courts or a corporate law firm for you it's not even not it's not even as if even policy is perhaps a traditional option now there are lots of other interesting things that that lawyers could be doing and i think people should be confident and curious about exploring those avenues the second is to make friends with people from other disciplines so lawyers tend to end up having friends who are only lawyers and that i find can be a very uh, narrow and limiting uh, world view i mean of course i made some of my best friends in law college like you and i'm very grateful for that but i'm also grateful 
you know, when I went to Oxford that I had to speak to doctors and economists and anthropologists and historians. And I find that that just gives you uh, a different perspective on life. Uh, my third tip is to write more. I know law students tend to enjoy mooting sometimes or give that uh, a lot of premium, but you know, purely as a, you know, as a matter of strategic advice also, ultimately what is valued more, I, you know, whether it's in an application to uh, an LLM program or to a legal policy think tank or even to you know, uh, in any other area of work, your, it's your writing skills that are going to stand you in, in good stead. So please write more, whether you're writing a blog or you're writing an op-ed or you're writing a journal article, just make the effort to write more. And it's not necessarily a legal sort of re- research. It could be yeah. anything. It could be anything, yeah. Uh, two life lessons that you have learned in the course of your life that you want to pass on. So sure. I think one is the, is not to be afraid of being uh, to take the road less traveled as to draw on that Robert Frost poem really as in not to worry about you know deviating from the beaten track or not following the conventional uh, path I mean for example I kind of wish I had I know I mean I've discussed I don't know if it's appropriate now to mention this in a conversation where I've talked about a career in the law but I've always harbored secret desires of being a doctor and I will always regret not having thought that I could make that switch halfway through my career because you know again as the sort of Indian mindset that once you've picked a particular profession or a particular career path you have to stick with it so I would say don't worry about making changes like that taking decisions like that the second is to be a to be more confident I mean this is the lesson that I have personally learned maybe it's not applicable to everyone because everyone has different personality types but for me um I have learned over the years and especially at Vidhi to be more outgoing, to, uh, you know, to, to be more proud of my work, I suppose, in some sense, be more comfortable talking about it to other people, uh, to, take, to take ownership of what I've done. I, and I feel like I still have a long way to go in that regard, but uh, broad takeaways to be more confident and assertive. Yeah, you know, Dhwani, uh, for someone who's listening and they've only heard about your achievements and, you know, you're like this really stunning bio. When you say this, like when you say, oh, be more confident, it would, it, it really, for some people, they, they probably not be even be able to reconcile. Okay, she's saying be more confident, but she's done all of this. Like, how is this the same person? It's only because <laughs> I know you for so long and I've seen I, you. Like yeah. one of the things that uh, everybody used to say is, oh, Dhwani, you're so humble. Like, you know, you, you're really very shy about your own achievements and uh, you never like to talk about it. And Yeah. So uh, it's actually a very good point that you made. And I think it's very, it's more common to women that we, we try and sort of not. Yeah. Uh, and, did, did, is this Orgo's influence also on you? 100%. Yeah. Definitely. I've certainly seen how he sort of conducts himself in yeah. in external meetings with funders yeah. with other collaborators and I've learned a lot from that yeah and uh, one the biggest the best piece of advice that you've ever received I think that is just to move on and be it from anything as in whether it's from a relationship that didn't work out or from uh, a project that didn't materialize or from a friend, I mean, I don't know, it, it, any any setback that you've had uh, to pick up the pieces and move on. I mean, I'm not saying you never uh, look back or don't uh, think about, you know, I mean, I, I guess the, the point, basic point is not to, to dwell on something, that there is always something to look forward to, something that you can make uh, of your life, even if things haven't gone exactly according to plan. Uh, and the sooner you are able to come to terms with that and accept what your lot is and figure out how to make that work in a better way for you, um, the happier you're likely to be. So moving on. That's good advice because uh, I agree. We can all use that. Exactly. Thank you so much, Dhwani. Uh, I, I mean, I'm so happy to speak to you and I'm so happy that you guys are among our 
first guests for this podcast uh, it's it's really important to me that you guys were in the uh, my first guests because uh, not just because you people are all doing very well that's a different issue but because you're so important to me in my life and i wanted you all to be the first ones so thank, thank you so much for doing this and uh, yeah take care we'll, we you will have to come back on to speak about medical law and stuff like that but this is just yeah yeah whenever yeah. you want me i'll, I'll do that this thanks one yeah okay. bye <laughs>